Uh, well, good morning. Uh, Going to start with a bit of research, okay? I need a bit of audience participation here. Uh, for some of you, this will involve you casting your minds back an incredibly long way, uh, but I have confidence you'll be able to do it, okay? What is your favourite subject at school? Uh, I'm going to just lob out uh, a few different subjects. Uh, how energetic are you feeling this morning? Very. Okay, well, uh, let, let, let's test this with a round of applause. So if I name the subject that was your favourite, I want you to applaud and we'll see which was the most popular in our West site. Okay, so, any geographers? Yeah, 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 okay. Mathematicians, do you wish to beat that one? Oh, that's, that's a strong case. Any historians? Uh, art? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Very creative. Yeah, I'm liking that. Uh, English? Yeah, I'll, I'll do a cheer for that one as well. Um, what am I missing? Languages. Languages and science. Okay, let, any language. Um, should we lump all the science together or is that to... Uh, one by one. Biology. Biology? Okay. Uh, uh, physics? Chemistry? Okay, am I missing anything else? PE, well, yeah. Uh, uh, personally, personally, PE, games, sport, all of that, that was my favourite as well. But if I'm being honest with you, I just wasn't very good. And looking at it, some of those who are applauding, I'm guessing you may be in the same boat as me. It's like, I would give it my all, but it didn't tend to go very well for me. And honestly, Looking back, that's not such a big deal, except that when you start out at secondary school, you begin to really try to figure out who you are by looking around at everybody else. And you're going, okay, am I with the athletic crowd or am I with the brainy crowd? Which group am I with? Which group am I not with? You start trying to figure out who am I and how do I fit into the world around me, you begin to form what's called your identity. Now, I think most people tend to assume that this seeking of identity and a group to belong to kind of just diminishes and fades as you go off to college or out into the working world. But I simply don't think that's true. I think we continue to try to define ourselves as we grow older. We might define ourselves by our job or the car we drive, the clothes we wear, or we define ourselves by physically how we're made up or emotionally how we're made up or even sexually how we are made up. We continue to define ourselves in these really limited, narrow, finite ways. It's like our entire worth is built around this relationship, or this house, or this job, or our children, or our ability to dress a certain way, or our health, or whatever. So this desire for identity, I would suggest, never really fully goes away. It just changes over time. And this is why I think one of the consistent themes in the book of Colossians, which we're working through this term, is this idea that for us as Christians, we are in Christ. Primarily, more than anything else, more than anything else that could define us or explain us, we are in Christ. Paul clearly seems to believe our identity 
isn't found in what we drive, obviously because cars weren't around back then, but it's not found in what we wear or physically what we're made out of, our sexuality or even our race, but rather our identity is made up primarily in who Christ is and what Christ has done. So for example, in Colossians 1:14, it says, in whom, that's Christ, we have freedom and forgiveness of sins. Later on in verse 16, it describes how in him all things were created. Verse 19 adds that God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ. And verse 22 says, he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. In the next chapter, Colossians 2 and verse 3, we're told that in him lie hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Verse 7, let your roots therefore grow down into him and let your lives be built on him. Verse 9, in Christ lives all the fullness of God in a human body. Verse 11 adds, we are circumcised in him. Verse 12, we're raised up in him. Colossians 4, 17 says that we see that the ministry and the gifts and the role we have in life has ultimately been given to us by him. You have this theme that's just completely repetitive right the way through the book of Colossians. Over and over and over again, what Paul's trying to get across to us is who we are is not defined by external stuff, no, it's internal. And Christ has done it so that my identity is now completely built on Him and on nothing Else. And wherever I go outside of him to determine what my identity is, effectively I become an idolater. You see, when you go, I won't be defined by God, I'm going to be defined by other stuff like my car, my house, my money, my education, my qualifications, my sexuality. What happens is you start holding on to those things so tightly that when God wants them, you don't want to let go. You don't want to give them up because you think they define who you really are. And Paul's trying to communicate that at the end of the day, that is an idolatrous way to live. So what I want to do today is try and show you why that is, and hopefully how Christ is looking to exert ownership over you in regards to your identity and really all of you. Let's look at this under two main headings. First of all, how do you actually get your identity in Christ? And then secondly, what does it mean in practice? What does it really look like to have your identity in Christ? Number one, how do you get your identity in Christ? We're going to pick it up in verse 9 of chapter 2. Paul says this, for in Christ lives all the fullness of God in a human body. So you also are complete through your union with Christ, who is the head over every ruler and authority. When you came to Christ, you were circumcised, but not by a physical procedure. Christ performed a spiritual circumcision, the cutting away of your sinful nature." 
Now, I need a pause there. I just need to give a little bit of explanation about what this is talking about. Back in the Old Testament, the Old Testament people of God, for them, circumcision was this external marking of belonging to God. And one of the big debates in the first century church was whether or not a man had to first become a Jew and get circumcised before he could then become a Christian and a follower of Jesus. It's fair to say the Apostle Paul was vehemently against this. In fact, in Galatians, he at one point says, look, if you want to make this external thing such a big deal, like if you are more holy because you do it, why not just cut the whole thing off and be the holiest of all of us? Paul didn't go for circumcision as an idea. In the end, fortunately, God is saying, you don't have to do that because I have circumcised your hearts. I own you internally. What I've done isn't just some kind of external marking. No, it's this internal transformation. I have cut away your sinful nature. Let me tell you why this is so important for you to understand. Reality is, and really, I I don't care what you've been taught historically, but you didn't decide by yourself to become a Christian. You're ultimately not able to do that. Your heart, your eyes, your mind are opened up by the Holy Spirit of God, and not because you have some sort of intrinsic beauty or worth or merit that God is attracted to and wants. In fact, let me prove my point. I prove my point with God's original choosing of the nation of Israel. If you remember the story, he leads them out of slavery and he guides them towards the promised land. He has circumcision as the marking that they are his people. And then he says, conquer the Canaanites, drive them out. This land will be yours. Have a listen to what he says to them as he tells them to do this. This is from Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 4. After the Lord your God has done this for you, don't then say in your hearts, the Lord has given us this land because we are such good people. No, it is because of the wickedness of the other nations that he's pushing them out of your way. It is not because you are so good or have such integrity that you are about to occupy their land. The Lord your God will drive these nations out ahead of you only because of their wickedness and to fulfill the oath he swore to your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You must recognize the Lord your God is not giving you this good land because you are good, for you're not. You're a stubborn people. At the end of the day, he's saying, look, this is me. I'm doing this for you. I'm not giving you this promised land because you have some kind of intrinsic goodness. It's because I'm good, not because of your goodness. And it's exactly the same thing that's going on here in Colossians. The whole point of Paul saying we've been circumcised on the inside is that it is God who's done it. He's the one who's called us and wooed us to himself, opened our eyes to something of the glory of his name and stirred up affection in our hearts for him and a mind that over time more and more longs for him. He's the one who's done this. 
This is such a profound truth. We are defined by what Christ has done for us and who we are in him and not by our external identity anymore. Now, later on in the passage, Paul addresses a slightly wrong, flawed way to try and get your identity in Christ. In verse 16, he says, so don't let anyone condemn you for what you eat or drink, or for not celebrating certain holy days or new moon ceremonies or Sabbaths, for these rules are only shadows of the reality yet to come, and Christ himself is that reality. Don't let anyone condemn you by insisting on pious self-denial or the worship of angels saying they've had visions about these things. No, their sinful minds have made them proud and they are not connected to Christ, the head of the body, for he's the one who holds the whole body together with its joints and ligaments and it grows as God nourishes it. You know, so easy to slip into thinking that your religious performance saves you. I say this very bluntly. Some of you perhaps think that you are Christians simply because you come along here on the weekends. But coming to a meeting or even being on a rota and doing lots of religious stuff, that doesn't make you a Christian. If you've got this external list of things that you do that you think are somehow saving you or making you worthy of coming to God, I'm telling you, you're wrong. Because we've already seen, haven't we, that it's a transformation on the inside, not this outward transformation that brings about conversion. Even if we're clear, we're not saved by our works, we're not saved by our performance, I think we can still get our identity from, well, I do all these things for him. If you ever find anyone that's really frustrated, even angry with God, a lot of the time they'll be thinking, look, this is what I've done for him and this is how he repays me, which is just a complete misunderstanding of what grace is and what they were actually guilty of in the first place and how good God's been to them in everything regardless of their current circumstances. But we have this tendency to do things for God in this vain attempt to earn things from him or to impress others with how spiritual we are. You know, being obsessed with what people think about you is one of the fastest ways to forget what God thinks about you. So ultimately, I'm Jonathan Bell, son of God. I'm not Jonathan Bell, preacher. I'm not Jonathan Bell, white middle-class guy. I'm not Jonathan Bell married with two kids. I'm not Jonathan Bell heterosexual male. I'm not defined by any of those external things. I don't need to physically look a certain way. Those aren't truths that define me anymore. I am defined by I am his. And so that way, if anything is taken from me, I'm still on solid ground. It it doesn't matter what's taken away from me. My health, my hair, my job, my family, all those other things that people might look and say, well, that defines who you are. Ultimately, it wouldn't matter. It might be painful. It might be hard. It, It might take some working through. But ultimately, it doesn't matter if any of that changes. The thing that remains the same is I am his. 
And that's not because I'm good enough. It's not because I've earned it or merited it, but because he is merciful and he is good. But that's not where the text stops. It says all of that and then moves on to say this in verse 12. For you were buried with Christ when you were baptized, and with him you were raised to new life because you trusted the mighty power of God who raised Christ from the dead. At the end of the day, my identity is secure because I've been called by God. Not because of my own goodness, but because of God's goodness. He has called me his own. He's marked me out. Jonathan Bell, you are one of my sons, and you are adopted as one of my sons, not because of your goodness, but because of the blood of Christ. And then Paul begins to unpack how that works, which brings us back to the gospel over and over and over again. The gospel the gospel, the gospel. So in the end here, you've got Jonathan Bell. You've been buried with Christ. Jonathan Bell dies with Jesus Christ. All that Jonathan Bell has been guilty of, all that wickedness he's done, the half of which you know nothing about, every error in thought, every sinful action, every dark motivation, every single bit of it goes on Christ and dies with him. It's over, it's finished, it's dead, it's buried. And then at the resurrection of Jesus, I'm then raised to walk in a brand new life. The Bible talks about it in terms of being born again. It's what we're acting out when we get baptized. We are buried with Christ into his death and raised to walk a brand new life. This is the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ isn't anything other than we get God. That's the gospel, that's the good news. The good news that we've been reconciled to God, brought into relationship with him, and that God is going to be enough regardless of our circumstances. That's the good news. In short, that is how to get your identity in Christ. That being said, let's move on secondly to look at some of the implications of this. What does it mean to have our identity in Christ? We've done the kind of theological bit. What's it look like for us? Let's keep reading. Chapter 2, verses 13 to 15. You were dead because of your sins and because of your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ, for he forgave all of our sins. He cancelled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. In this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. I want to talk about just a couple of things here. First and foremost, the weight of this passage is that we have been made alive. We've been made alive. Way way back in the beginning, remember, God created Adam and Eve. He said to them, don't eat the fruit from this particular tree, for if you eat it, you will surely die. So the price of treason was death. And that's just. And it's right. And that's how most governments operate even to this day. You try to overthrow the state, you die, or you go to prison for a very long time and you die there. That's what God's saying. If you eat of this fruit, that is the equivalent of treason. It's rebellion against me. You do it and you're going to end up dead. And Adam and Eve inexplicably do it. But God doesn't kill them, at least not instantly. It's the first act of mercy. 
But nonetheless, that curse of death remains over all of us. You are going to die. I am going to die. We're all going to die. Death still reigns until we get to that moment where we're raised up with Christ on the final day, the consummation of all things. That's where we can join with Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 and say, where, O death, is your sting? Where, O death, is your victory? We can say that now in the sure and certain hope that because our hope is in Christ, one day the dead shall rise in him. There will be a day when there is literally no sting, literally no fury in death. Death will be over once and for all, and we will reign with Christ in the new heaven and the new earth with brand new resurrection bodies that may eventually be good at sport and PE and games and maths and the sciences and art and all these other subjects that we talked about earlier on. But for those of you who are alive in here and don't believe in Jesus Christ, there will be a day. In fact, Jesus even taught it. No one likes that Jesus taught this. No one ever wants to address this subject. But you need to know that Jesus promised there's coming a day where his mercy runs out and it will be judgment day. Let's be real, no one likes that. We want nice, loving, fairy Jesus, fluttering about, never gets frustrated, no judgment, no wrath. But the unescapable flip side of the good news that those who are in Christ have been delivered from the curse of death is the absolutely petrifying reality that if you're not in Christ, death isn't simply the end. It merely signals the beginning of the full weight of the just, righteous, holy, appropriate judgment of God. And because Paul doesn't want anyone to experience this, he goes on to unpack how it's possible for us to experience the forgiveness of all of our sins, the cancelling of the record of charges against us, the cancelling of all of our debt to God. Now, I know I'm in danger of repeating myself here, but I do want to make this as clear as I possibly can. It is not that you paid off the debt. It's not that in the past I did some bad things, Now I've done some right things, which hopefully kind of balances it out. And so these things from my past that I'm a bit ashamed of, that don't matter anymore because I'm right now. I've paid off the debt, or maybe I'm paying it back in some way. This isn't what's happening in this text. It's not so much that you paid off your mortgage early. It's more like you came home after your first week in your new house and all the debt that you owed to the bank was cancelled just like that. The bank called you up saying, don't worry, it is now paid for in full. You don't need to make any more payments. If you heard that, you wouldn't keep the direct debit going, would you? You wouldn't keep paying money to the bank or trying to pay back the mortgage. You'd be very happy, you'd celebrate, and you'd walk free of that debt. That is the picture here in this passage. 
God has cancelled the record of debt so that for those of us who are believers in Jesus Christ, we are now declared righteous. We are justified. It's just as if I had never sinned. I am right before God. Once again, this goes back to how we started this thing, not because I'm intrinsically good in and of myself, not because I'm righteous in my own skin, but because there has been a righteousness given to me because I am in Christ. It's not my righteousness I stand in. I won't be able to stand in my own righteousness for very long, no matter how impressive it was. No, it is the righteousness of Christ. I am in him. When the Father looks at me, he sees Jesus, his own Son. As Ezekiel 18 puts it, if a man sins, he forfeits the right to life. I'm standing in front of you right now as someone who has sinned. I deserve, in regards to justice, death right now. Yet here I am preaching to you. Why? Because the record of debt over my life has been cancelled. As Paul puts it in verse 14, God took it away by nailing it to the cross. Which is why he's then able to say, because you're in Christ, the debt is clean. You are made alive with Christ, for he forgave all our sins. First implication, first glorious benefit of being in Christ. But there's more. Second thing I want to touch on is the authority that's ours in Christ. Paul goes on to say in verse 15 that in making us alive, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. Paul's saying, through the death and resurrection of Jesus, any power that Satan and his demonic minions might have wielded over us is now broken. Christ's authority over these evil rulers and authorities has been clearly demonstrated in his death and his resurrection. And the good news is, in him, we share that same authority. That needs a little bit of explanation because I think that tends to be two big mistakes people tend to make when it comes to demonic powers. I'm guessing in this room we we may go one way or the other. One is that there are some people who think that pretty much everything is demonic. Everything that ever goes bad in your life, it's a demon. It's not a, a nail that you ran over, or it's not the fact you left your keys inside the car before you shut the door and inadvertently locked it with the keys inside. No, that was a demon that did that to you. Probably not. Probably you're just a little foolish and locked your keys in the car. That's probably what happened. You were forgetful, or you were having a senior moment, or maybe you're carrying a screaming baby, dragging a bag behind you, it's pouring as rain, and accidentally you locked yourself out of the car. I don't know that that was a demonic attack. (laughs) However, the other mistake people make is to pretend that this stuff just doesn't exist at all, to never give it any attention to never give it any thought, to ignore the fact that those things are reality and they are out to kill, steal and destroy. 
But they do prowl around like a roaring lion waiting for someone to devour. Bible teaches there are things that we can actively do that invite their hooks into us. If you've committed some kind of grievous sin like murdering someone or committing adultery or if you have some sort of habitual sin and you're just addicted to it, then you are effectively opening the door and inviting what's wicked to walk into your life. And then there are passive ways this can happen as well, passive ways that the demonic can work us over in some way. Anything from a generational curse or someone putting a curse on us. Now once again, we're Westerners. I know this is way outside some of our comfort zones, but you can talk to church leaders in areas where there's a whole lot of occult activities. There have often been times when sacrifices have been made, there are curses put on believers in other parts of the world. They didn't do anything to invite it, but others put a curse on them. Another thing to be aware of is that there is just demonic attack. They don't have to do anything to invite it, they just come and attack us. They're straight up demonic attacks. Now the whole point in mentioning this to you this morning isn't to now scare you or cause you to live in fear, quite the opposite. The whole point is that all authority has been given to Jesus and we are in him, he is in us, so that authority has been given to us. I'll give you some really practical examples of what this might look like. First of all, if you've been involved with some kind of grievous or habitual sin, you can simply grab a friend in the church or maybe one of the leaders who you trust and pray together. You can renounce any allegiance you have historically given to what is dark. You can profess your belief in Christ's finished work on the cross. You can declare with confidence, this is now over. This is where my allegiance is now. Jesus has ultimate authority over my life from now on. And you can get your friend or one of the leaders in the church here to declare over you, you are his. The blood of Christ is effective to bring freedom into your life. Receive freedom now in the powerful, authoritative name of Jesus. You can pray like that with real confidence. One of the things we've done as a family is we've tried to make our house a house of worship. That's worked out in any number of different ways. It's not me strutting around on the guitar leading the family in worship. No one in my house wants that. It's things like when they were much younger praying a blessing over my children before they go to sleep at night. Again, just so you're not mishearing me, I don't think from now on you should go into your kids' room, lay hands on them and pray, Jesus, I just pray you'd protect Johnny from the demons that are trying to kill his soul. I strongly recommend you don't go there. Don't terrify your children. That isn't what I'm talking about here. This is simply a prayer of blessing and protection. I pray for their hearts, for their minds. Their room will be a place where the Holy Spirit speaks to them and reveals to them when they're awake and when they're asleep more of who God is. It's just a simple prayer that this room is Christ. This 
bed that they're sleeping in is Christ. This house is Christ. He's, he's given the house to us as stewards for his name, and he will reign and rule in this place. We, we declare out loud that this is the domain of the authority of Christ. So this is how we're made alive. We're freed from death, from evil forces that mean to destroy us. And we're freed from the sin and guilt that would otherwise condemn us. That is the great good news of the gospel. Now, if you want to learn what it actually looks like to walk in this victory, just listen to the Apostle Paul talk about how dark he used to be and how he's not ashamed of it. If anything, he's saying these things were shameful, but look how beautiful Christ is that he could save and rescue such a wretch as me. These things become more of a how amazing is God. We've been made alive in Christ. Our debt has been cancelled and we've been set free from the powers of this world. And my identity is now completely secure in Christ. As we wrap this up, let's very quickly look at how Paul applies this passage in verse 20. He says, you have died with Christ and he has set you free from the spiritual powers of this world. So why do you keep on following the rules of the world, such as don't handle, don't taste, don't touch? Such rules are mere human teachings about things that deteriorate as we use them. These rules may seem wise because they require strong devotion and pious self-denial and severe bodily discipline, but they provide no help in conquering a person's evil desires. I know I said we're wrapping this up, but don't switch off. This is so important. You see, what ends up happening when you manage your own behavior rather than press into Christ is that if you gain a bit of success over a period of time, you become your own savior. You become self-reliant. It's all about you. It's all down to you. So say, for example, your issue is one of lust or a lack of discipline in some other area, and you're I want to manage growth in that area for a period of time. Now, that area of sin is simply replaced with a new area of sin, one of pride and arrogance and self-reliance that's far more difficult to penetrate and root out than the actual issue in the first place. It's like lust was there to show, reveal, highlight your need for a saviour, and that saviour ultimately is not you. When you try and conquer temptation, your own strength, and you succeed, then you have no need of God. And when you fail, as inevitably you will, you tend to think God could never love you and you're unworthy and you are excluded. From beginning to end, we need to find our forgiveness and salvation and strength in Christ and in Christ alone. More than anything else, my hope today is you would find more and more your identity in Him, and that you would be honest about where you're finding your identity in other things. Some of you, your entire identity is built on how you look physically. You just need to be careful there. Be responsible. Look after your body but if your worth is how you're looked at by other people, you have turned that into an idol. Some of you, your identity is in your home, it's in your job, it's in your sexuality. 
maybe even in your ministry, your role in the church. It's in a relationship, it's in your kids, it's, it's in those things. Those things are going to betray you in some way. They do not define you. But because you think they do define you, you fearfully cling on to them as if you're clinging on to life itself because you don't know who you'd be outside of those things. The Bible says you're in Christ. That's your identity. Your identity is that you are in Him. And once you get that he has transformed your heart on the inside, that he's cut away your sinful nature, that he owns you, that you belong to him, that the authority given to him has now been given to you, that he's cancelled your record of debt, that in him you live and move and have your very being. Once you start grasping those things and living in the good of them, then you can be freed up from all those other things that try to define you, eventually end up feeling very heavy on 